1: Hi, and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. This is the second in a series that we are doing focusing on Agenda 2021. In other words, what the agenda should be for the next president of the United States uh, to adapt to the world as it's changing, but also to address issues that uh, have arisen in the course of the Trump administration. We're really privileged to have with us today Uh, three experts who can help us deal with the whole range of issues associated with human rights, democracy, and press freedom uh, around the world. We have with us Ambassador Derek Mitchell, who's president of the National Democratic Institute. Hi, Derek. Hi, David. We have Suzanne Nossel, who is the CEO of PEN America. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. And we have Suzanne's former colleague, Ken Roth, who is Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, Human Rights Watch, I can. Hi, Evan, good to be here. Uh, the structure of our conversation is going to be pretty straightforward. I'm going to ask a few conversations, but basically, I want to start by saying, asking your assessment of where are we in the respective areas that are important to you, and then I'm going to say, where do you think we need to go? Uh, where can we go? So that's the, the arc of this conversation. Uh, let me start with you, Suzanne. Uh, uh, where do you think we are with the, the with regard to the set of issues you focus on at Penn, um, and uh, uh, what it, perhaps is your assessment or your critique of the Trump administration's handling of those issues?
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, you know, I would not have imagined this country could fall quite so far, quite so fast as I think we have in terms of human rights both at home here domestically and U.S. leadership around the world here at home. It's a familiar litany that most of your listeners have been living through, you know, whether it's on immigrants' rights and the separation of children from their parents at the border and detention. Press freedom, the president's attacks on journalists and the media just uh, this week, attacking Twitter, threatening to regulate or shut down Twitter for daring to fact check one of his tweets, you know, a flagrant violation of the First Amendment, threatening to use the power of the federal government uh, to retaliate against speech he disagrees with, rolling back protections for LGBTQ individuals in the military and in employment, you know, paring back asylum protections, you know, uh, Healthcare rights, environmental rights, letting loose uh, corporations to pollute, personally fanning bigotry and hateful speech—you uh, know—it's—it's it's sort of a, a very long list that I think has taken a kind of flawed, but uh, you know, more serious approach to respecting our human rights obligations at home into kind of a tailspin. And so, the next administration will have its work cut out across the spectrum of domestic policy issues that, uh, you know, where these patterns have to be res- reversed value. There has to be a kind of renewal of vows to the basic principles that, you know, underpin the constitution uh, and our society. And then of course, around the world, coddling authoritarians, whether it's Putin or Sisi or Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, looking the other way when you know one time would be Democrats in, in Turkey and India and Brazil, Hungary, uh, you know, turn back on fundamental principles and move toward authoritarianism. So uh you know th- I would say it's 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 sort of disorder and retreat and rollback all around and the world hasn't of course not stood still. You know, in the meantime we have China's economic and political rise and an alternative value system that's being put forward and I think to many countries around the world looks increasingly Attractive, so it's not just a matter of undoing what the Trump administration has done It's also confronting a different world landscape that we now inhabit Uh,
1: Ken same question to you. Well, I mean Suzanne's done a good job of um, outlining some of the domestic um, you know
2: transgressions of the Trump administration. Let me just add that I think you know one way to understand what he's doing um, is that he's you know at least following the early stages of the autocrats handbook, which is that you undermine the checks and balances on your authority. Um, and so we've seen you know efforts to restrict voting rights. Um, we've seen the attacks on the inspector generals, the non-cooperation with various congressional inquiries, um, the politicization of the judiciary so that it no longer is a at least a reliable check. On the presidency, um, it's gotten so bad that there. You know, this week in the press, there was an account of a scenario planning done by various people. You know, what happens if Trump cancels the election? You know, what if he doesn't respect the results of the election? So, um, you know, it doesn't mean that we're in autocrats land yet. Um, there still is a vigorous press. There's a vigorous civil society. The Democrats control the House. Um, there are you know significant ways in which um, democracy can push back, but it's a concern. And and I think people are rightfully worried about the path that Trump is going down at home. Abroad, um, we've seen—I mean, not only this embrace of you know almost every autocrat under the sun. So you know whether it's you know, Duterte in the Philippines or Putin in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, Sisi in in Egypt, um, Orbán in Hungary—you um, can go on and on—which um, tends to counteract the occasional human rights protests you get around. You know, Venezuela or China um, or, or Iran, because they're seen as utterly unprincipled. You know, they just pick and choose when they're going to embrace the tyrant and when they're going to um, mount a, a protest. But there's also been, I think, a really a more fundamental attack on the human rights system. So we saw Trump, you know, pull the United States out of its coveted seat at the UN Human Rights Council because the council was said to criticize Israel too much. Um, the administration has actually threatened sanctions against the staff and their family at the International Criminal Court because the prosecutor's office had the audacity to investigate in Afghanistan and Palestine, which could implicate US torturers in Afghanistan or um, the Israeli government's um, illegal building of settlements in the West Bank. Um, And we even saw with with, um, Pompeo, the Secretary of State, um, he is kind of doing what China would do. He has set up this commission on unalienable rights, which is his effort to pick and choose among which rights the U.S. government will deem itself bound by. I and mean, that's, you know, China, think. think. Um, the Chinese government says, oh, we're going to do economic development first and we'll worry about human rights down the road. That's, in a sense, what Pompeo is doing. He's doing a different selection of rights. He says religious liberty first, you know, not things like LGBT rights or reproductive freedom but it's it's the same thought that we don't take the full body of international human rights law, the treaties as a given, we pick and choose among them, but of course that's not binding law. So, I mean, those are among the threats that we're facing both domestically and abroad from this administration.
3: Derek? Well, um, NDI works on democracy overseas, so we we tend not to comment on democracy at home in the United States, Um, and I, I think it's no secret that democracy overseas is under some stress and has been for some time. This is not simply a something over the past three years or four years of a Trump administration. Uh, Freedom House has been monitoring or monitors this every year and they've noticed in the past almost 15 years of a steady degradation each year of democracy uh, around the world. So this is this is a real concern that goes beyond the current moment. And it's based on a number of factors. It's based on Heightened expectations. Maybe people had too high expectations of what democracy would deliver quickly. Um, It could be simply that uh, some of the old guard figured out how to game a democratic system or game the democratic institutions in order to to control um, and have what we say democracy in form, but not in fact. So they can control the media, they can buy off elites, uh, they can do a host of things, they can pack the courts. Uh, as, as Ken talked about, the authoritarian playbook. We've seen this in other countries. The fact that we're seeing that here is, a, is just maybe the latest evidence of this, but it didn't start in the past three years. Uh, you also have uh, the rise of technologies like Facebook and such that, uh, that create division, allow for spoilers, uh, both domestic spoilers and international spoilers, to create hate, uh, to foster disinformation. And when you don't know what a fact is, you're operating on your own facts. Then you have a problem for democracy. And then you have the rise of China. And China is using its resources in order to assert its own values, to protect its own interests. Uh, So these are pretty heavy headwinds, where uh, if democracy doesn't deliver the goods for people, they will look for options, they will look for people who give them uh, simple solutions to hard problems. Uh, And there are those out there now, first time, certainly since the Cold War, we have countries that are interested in shaping a world um, that is illiberal. So all of this is creating headwinds to democracy. And simply what's happening in the United States is unfortunate in this context. That You don't have American leadership, which used to be the one kind of place where you can see a counter to these types of trends historically. Um, And in fact, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing maybe uh, uh, encouragement of these trends.
1: Well, I think that's that's a point I'd like to pick up on as we go sort of into a second round of questioning here, Suzanne. Um, the United States has never had a, a a perfect record internationally. We tended to pick and choose. We had the dictators we tolerated as well as the, the dictators that we opposed. But um, it, it seems that we've started to play more actively for the other side. Whether it's deconstructing international institutions that provide key protections, defunding programs that advance uh, these kinds of issues, de-emphasizing these issues, whether it's in the mission of the State Department or um, uh, in 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 the activities or priorities enumerated by political leaders, um, or embracing people who are on the other side. Whether it's you know uh, you know Ken mentioned some bad guys, we could mention a lot more, um, and 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 it seems like the message of this administration is, uh, if you will do business with us in a way that benefits the president of the United States, you get a free pass. Um, and you know I, I, I'm wondering whether you, know, you see this as isolated. Or, you know, are there some bigger underlying trends there? Um, uh, you know, Derek brought up one, which I think is important. You know, the, we, I remember in the Clinton administration, we were all very enthusiastic about the rise of the internet because we thought this is going to be a big democratizing force. And yet it's turned out that a number of the biggest internet companies that connect the world um, are quite the contrary. So how much of it is the man and, and how much of it is the moment?
0: Yeah, look, I think it's a couple of things. And, you know, as you point out, the U.S.'s record has never been perfect or close to perfect. And there's always been a, you know, kind of a raging tension between national security interests, kind of national interests straight up, and U.S. obligations, both in terms of our values that have been embraced by successive administrations and our duties under international law and international human rights instruments. So those have always been in tension. But The way I look at it, there has, at least during most administrations, been a sense that, you know, where possible you want to uphold these obligations, that the U.S. stands for something, that that moral authority is a source of strength, that it's a differentiator on the international scene, that we need to adhere to and fulfill these obligations, you know, lest we squander that authority and that influence, and that—that's been an essential kind of element of the U.S.'s role in the world and, and American leadership. And I think in this administration, you really have, at least at the at the top with the president, you have someone who is, you know, quite clearly not conscience-driven. He's not someone, you know, for whom these values carry weight. He's not afraid of being seen to turn his back or, you know, in, uh, embrace uh, Mohammed bin Salman right after the butchering of Jamal Khashoggi. It doesn't shock his conscience. Uh, There's very little sense of an American reputation as a standard bearer that he is obligated to uphold in his role. I think that really is different. And I think, you know, in terms of the trends that Derek talks about, you know, it's as if this sort of contagion of the diminution and the waning of democracy, you know, has, has caught hold here, but I think it's worse here because, you you know, the United States episodically and imperfectly, you know, and, and I know Ken has sort of documented this, you know, over so many years, you know, all the, fluctuations and disappointments and betrayals of, you know, the Bush administration and the war on terror. And there's a lot to be said about all of that. But I think the abdication that we see from Washington in the present moment has accelerated the trends that we witness around the world. There's no pushback. There's no sense that someone is watching who actually cares about these things, you know, uh, who's going to bring it up in bilateral meetings, who's going to uh, push for UN resolutions and rally the world to protest against uh, this backsliding. And I think, you know, that is a categorical difference. And and whether we can regain, you know, that position of moral authority, you know, I think is, is a question because it was already diminished and damaged before this administration. I think during Obama, some of it was restored, but there were some uh, setbacks and shortcomings there that I think compounded this sense that the US had really lost its way. I think that the trump administration has been you know just a a complete abdication so i think we're in sort of a a new moment i think uh you know the u.s can go back but it's going to take a much more kind of principled uh and structured approach to fulfilling these obligations so that we build up a degree of legitimacy which has been lost
1: well of course ken you know one country can't do all of this and the trends Uh, such as we've been talking about them a little, are not just uh, us taking pages out of the autocrats handbook or a few other autocrats rising. Uh, We've had the hollowing out of the space that was traditionally occupied by the the Western Alliance, both institutionally, but also in terms of leadership priorities. It's not just that the United States has receded. Europe has atomized. Uh, The Russians have played some role in that uh, uh, in helping to foster the rise of nationalism within Europe, which weakens Europe's voice overall. Um, we've seen the rise of China, uh, which clearly has, a, a, a you know, an authoritarian agenda, which it's actually, you know, accelerating uh, as we speak in Hong Kong. Um, uh, but you also have nationalists elsewhere in places where there was some hope, you know, and Modi uh, in in India or Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, uh, so, if you look to the big countries, if you look to the leaders of the world, set aside the United States, there aren't many others who are going to step up. You know, Angela Merkel might or or Trudeau or Macron might, but their leverage is much less than it used to be. And and my question is, do you, do you think this is a historical trend? Is this does this define this moment and the next decade or the next couple of decades?
2: I mean, David, it's not quite as dire as you, you outline. Um, in that, yes. Well,
1: I'm trying to provoke a lively conversation. I understand. Okay. Um, fair
2: enough. But, you know, I mean, yes, China is using its economic clout to really try to you know, undermine respect for human rights and, and democracy because it, it doesn't want that system working for fear that it will boomerang back and, um, and, and lead to its delegitimization at home. Um, you know, Putin similarly um, has no interest in strong international human rights institutions where he is you know, running things as an autocrat. And so, you know, there are a number of people like that around the world. And of course, the U.S. has shown itself to be utterly unreliable. And I don't think it's going to be, I mean, I, I think if, you know, if there's a President Biden, there will be, you know, some return to normality. But when you speak to diplomats around the world, they no longer entirely trust the United States to be a kind of a beacon on human rights issues because you know whether it was the electoral college or the popular vote, they recognize that Trump, you know, was elected. He reflects a significant part of America, that part of America is going to be there. Um, And so they just don't know that they can rely on America for the long term. They'll sort of take it when it's there, but they're not counting on it being there all the time. But what where I differ with you, where I think it's not as dire as you've outlined, is that you know it might have been that governments would just sort of abandon the effort, say, well without the United States, what can we do? Uh, it hasn't worked out that way. In fact, what we've seen is that coalitions of governments, you know, not superpowers, but coalitions of medium and smaller states have banded together, recognizing that they believe in this system and they need to uphold it. And so you know, in Latin America, you have the Lima Group, which has taken the lead initially on Venezuela and now in Nicaragua. This was deliberately designed to exclude the United States. It was a dozen or so Latin American democracies plus Canada. And it's been very effective in putting pressure on Maduro, doing a number of things that are utterly unprecedented, including you know, getting the UN Human Rights Council to denounce what was going on there, sending Venezuela to the International Criminal Court, imposing sanctions. I mean, this is just unheard of in Latin America for governments to criticize each other in human rights terms like that. We've seen similar things, you know, say, with Saudi Arabia's role in Yemen, where um, the Netherlands took the lead, um, building a coalition of European governments, Um, and played a big role in putting sufficient pressure on the Saudis that the Saudi-led coalition has effectively fallen apart, and the Saudis are looking for a way to get out of Yemen. Um, In the case of say, Myanmar and the Rohingya Muslims, the the ironic leader of this has been the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is hardly a friend of human rights, but it was their own who were targeted. And so it was Gambia, a small member of that organization, led the effort at the World Court to get a genocide ruling against Myanmar and orders to protect the Rohingya who remain in Rakhine state. Um, And you can see kind of examples of this over and over, even with respect to China. There have been coalitions of governments, say two dozen or so, that have twice now, one at the Human Rights Council, one at the General Assembly in New York, um, condemned what China is doing in Xinjiang. And it was a comparable coalition working with Australia. That led to the World Health Assembly resolution that authorizes some kind of investigation, it's not entirely clear what, into um, the response to the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan. So, you know, these are, I'm not saying this is a panacea, you know, the, the US being on board is better than it not being on board. But the absence of the US has not led to an end to these efforts to uphold human rights standards around the world.
1: Well, it's interesting, and there's an interesting analogy with uh, the fight against COVID, where small and medium sized countries. Have been at the forefront of the fight they offer some of the best examples uh and maybe that in and of itself is a bit of a democratizing force uh you know in terms of the global debate um uh, but derek you know as 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 you folks look at the health of democracy worldwide you know what's your what's your prognosis Are are you feeling there are, you know, positive trends like these that you can seize upon. Ken, Ken brought up Myanmar, which is a place I know that's close to your heart.
3: Yeah, yeah. Tragically close to my heart. <laughs> it's, you know, they always tend to disappoint, I, I feel, even though, yes, I feel very strongly about them. Um, and just to build on what, what Ken said and what your question is about, um, I, I completely take Ken's point that, yes, others have stepped up, and that is good. It is important that others do that, and maybe at, at times it's healthy for others not to simply um, uh, hide behind America or just assume America is going to do it. And they take more responsibility. We wanted that for some time. And now they're sort of forced to, uh, which is good. Um, but there is no substitute for American leadership. They're just, it, it, yes, they can step up. Yes, it will fill somewhat of a vacuum. But what we've seen, and I think what we knew anyway, was, as you say, Europe is not going to step up. Others are not, you know. Germany can can speak, and that is extremely important what Merkel says, or Japan can do something in Asia, but but there's no substitute for American leadership. So it's essential that, that America do step up. It's a U.S.-led international order, though. It's not simply a U.S. international order, and we're seeing that, and that gives me hope. That's where we see, I think, the, as far as America may have fallen in the eyes of folks overseas and as little regard or confidence as may, they may have, they still will have an interest in being with us if we decide to assert that leadership again. Because that leadership is not just even though we believe in these moral values. This, I mean, there there is a very practical reason why this stuff matters. I mean, the international order of the past 75 years led to the greatest growth and development of the world we've ever seen in in global history. It's helped uh, the South, it's helped developing countries for the most part, it's not been perfect but there's been, you know, China has risen because of that order. Others have risen because of that order. So if there's a leadership again, I think, yes, there'll be some question about America and whether they can counter trust America. But I think aside from that, I would hope and expect also that countries could galvanize around the norms and values and standards that we would represent and that we can lead on again. And that's what's important, is the defining challenge of our moment is not necessarily the geopolitical one, Explicitly between the US and China, say it's about the norms, standards, rules, and values that we represent. And what I'm hopeful about is what we've seen over the past year um, and you know, is these demonstrations all over the world, popular demonstrations of frustration and anger. And it's happening in democratic countries, but it's happening in Tehran, it's happening in Moscow, it's happening in Istanbul, it's happening. Uh, in Hong Kong, <laughs> you can call that China. It's happening everywhere because people want more of a voice. They want more and better democracy. Um, and so that, and it's happening in the United States, it comes from a rage that can go in negative direction, you go towards a demagogue, but frankly, demagogues can scratch the itch in the near term, they don't in the longer term. And the challenge for folks like NDI or all of us who care about these values of democracy is how do we channel that energy in productive directions? How do we show that that voice is listened to? It's heard. That the rural voices have the same, you know, um, uh, the same amplification that rural voices do, so that we can find a stable solution together. And frankly, China has no answers to that. No one's following a China model gladly. They do it simply if they want to develop their economies. But in terms of the values that China brings, no one, you know, the billions of people around the world are seeking what we are we normally do promote. And that right there is an automatic optimism or or a positive point for us. That is not easy, not saying that this is all easy or it's going to be smooth, but gives us at least some hope that if we get ourselves back on track, uh, we have something to work with.
1: Well, before I move towards, you know, what should the specific agenda of the next administration be, Suzanne, I want to pick up on what Derek is talking about with regard to China. Um, And perhaps a subset of it, although you may talk about the rise of china and the fact that the other great geopolitical power has a very very different playbook than we do and what the consequences of that may be um uh because certainly for example free expression in in uh, asian countries even non-china asian countries is, is 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 somewhat different than than the american ideal but there's another subset of this which you I might address as well. And that is that there are a few more months left in this administration. And I see the Chinese move in Hong Kong as, you know, potentially, you know, an effort to say, well, there's leadership void right now. Let's get some of this stuff done before we have a new administration and perhaps new leadership in the West. So I wonder what your thoughts are on either of those points.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, this situation in Hong Kong has been brewing for a long time. We've been documenting for years, kind of this, uh, we called our our first report on Hong Kong threatened harbor. And it was really about how China was uh, encroaching increasingly on press freedoms and uh, all of the safeguards in terms of the rule of law that are part of the one country, two systems framework that was agreed during the handover. So this has been a gradual and accelerating process. You've seen these very kind of courageous, uh, stalwart democracy advocates, multi-generational, you know, people who've been at this their whole lives, coupled with, you know, people who began as kids in high school uh, and in their 20s, you know, just on on the front lines of this, Joshua Long and Nathan Law and others. And it's inspiring. I think, you know, that's, you know, Ken sort of uh, listing out the positive steps that smaller countries have taken. I think, you know, another place where we can take some encouragement, you know, is the the inspiration of some of the young people who've been at the forefront of these fights, not just in Hong Kong, but around the world. But, you know, it's always been sort of with Beijing, the the immovable object and a sense of inevitability uh, about where this would go and kind of questions of how quickly, aggressively China would move and I think you know one somewhat chastening factor is that we live in a digital age where everything is captured on cell phone video and when Hong Kong police are brutalizing peaceful demonstrators that doesn't that's not a good look I don't know that they would do a Tiananmen style crackdown uh in this era and so it, it becomes kind of a game of chicken with the protesters and now China uh, Beijing is up the ante now promising to put in place this new national security law that's going to criminalize uh sedition and dissent and you know people are very worried and i think you're right uh they're trying to take advantage of a moment where the trump administration is flummoxed and hamstrung and preoccupied with the pandemic and you know unsure how to engage china also in the election context trying to accuse joe biden of being weak on China, you know, and and, and seeing that turned back in his face with kind of a litany of praise that uh, he had given to Xi Jinping during the early days of the pandemic. And so I think you're right, they're trying to seize the advantage, but this is a longstanding uh, agenda. And, you know, it is a very uh, firm uh, and powerful and widespread broad protest movement, uh, democracy movement in Hong Kong. It's not just it's not just these young people or these lifelong activists. It's also a lot of ordinary voters who have, uh, put these people into the ledge co, uh, voted them into office. Uh, you know, including some very young politicians uh, mm-hmm. who have been kind of vaulted into prominence and and positions of you know degree of legislative authority. So. You know, what the public of Hong Kong does in this reckoning, I think is going to be the test. Do they you know continue to take the risk of going out into the streets? do they back up these leaders or do they kind of consign themselves to the inevitable? And I think you know one factor in that will be you know what is the u s. role what is the u s. saying even with the Trump administration? I think the statements. Are very important. Secretary Pompeo made a strong statement, you know, but they, I think the, the the worry and the fear is that's not going to be backed up with anything, and it's going to be, uh, you know, ultimately judged as a kind of paper tiger, and then Beijing will proceed, knowing that nothing is going to stand in their way. And you know, I think it's also a big question in terms of the international community. You know, Ken pointed out that there have been uh, some mobilizations on Xinjiang, but there have also been, you know, Chinese orchestrated counter efforts to rally countries to defend them and protect them from scrutiny. And uh, there's, China has done a very good job with its Belt and Road Initiative, sewing up trade relationships and buying influence around the world. And so will we see, you know, uh, if they take this to the fullest extent of Hong Kong, will we see, uh, you know, much uproar and backlash Globally, you know, I I, I wonder about that. Uh, you know, Hong Kong obviously is sort of a special case because uh, you know it, it, it's part of China, uh, and and I think for many countries, you know, if they analogize it to some kind of domestic situation, yeah, you know, there can be an impulse to be on China's on Beijing's side on this. So. Uh, I think that's one of the most important kind of bellwethers over the next few months in terms of how the U.S. reacts, how the rest of the world reacts, and whether, you know, this this kind of very genuine uh, uh, and inspirational protest movement and democracy movement, uh, you know, is, is snuffed out.
1: So, Ken, let me, I mean, if you want to pick up on that, feel free to, but let me also move the conversation forward, given, you know, our time constraints here, and that is there's an election in November. Uh, The alternative to uh donald trump is joe biden um joe biden uh comes from you know certain kinds of traditions in the democratic party although the party seems to be changing what do you think will be different what do you think should be different about a biden administration were it to take office at the end of next january
2: well, I mean, David, maybe I could just go back to China for a moment, because, I mean, yes, China is going to be taking advantage of, you know, of everybody's preoccupation with the pandemic, um, the change of administration. It's, I mean, in that sense, it's a good time for it to move. But I actually see um, Xi Jinping in a very defensive crouch right now. Um, you know, what he basically has sold to the Chinese people is, you know, you let the Chinese Communist Party lead, we'll get you richer. And, um, you know, that deal is kind of breaking down because of the pandemic. Um, you know, he was able to say, oh, well, at least I stopped the coronavirus. But, you know, did they handle it that well? I mean, during the first three weeks after the Wuhan doctors tried to warn us, their warnings were suppressed rather than heeded. Um, at a time when literally millions of people fled Wuhan or traveled through it and the virus went global. So while ultimately they were able to tame the virus, you know, it was really mismanagement that allowed it to explode the way it did. Um, and of course, this is the same state that is you know, detained a million Uyghur and other Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang for, for forced indoctrination. They're building this surveillance state, which is you know, something that most people would, would never want to live under. And I think, you know, ultimately, why is he moving on Hong Kong? Because you know, Hong Kong shows how Chinese people feel about this. You know, Hong Kong is the only place where Chinese people are free to express their opinion about whether they like this um, trade-off to live under dictatorship or whether they want democracy, freedom, and the rule of law. And it's quite clear, um, they don't want the dictatorship. So that is a dangerous signal. And Xi Jinping is determined to crush it at a moment when he's afraid that people on the mainland are going to be able to ask, are beginning to ask whether this trade-off is work, worth it, when suddenly they're not doing as well economically as they have been. So I, I think that this is it's a dangerous moment precisely because Xi Jinping is insecure. You know, he portrays himself as a strong man but he knows that things are not going well for him right now domestically. And that is making him, I think, uh, more desperate, more repressive, which is why this is really the toughest time in terms of repression that we've seen since the Tiananmen Square crackdown. Now, in terms of you know, what does the United States do about this? I mean, I think you know, to maybe take a step backwards, and this is not so much, you know, I mean, of course, we want a re-embrace of international standards, of course, a re-embrace of alliances, you know, a recognition that, that democracy and human rights has gotta be a, a collective endeavor. But I, I do think that there's real value in showing you know, how do democracies work versus how do autocracies work. And it's not just China that's not delivering. I mean, if you look at you know, Orban, where you know, he took these dictatorial powers for a while because of the pandemic, and proceeded to kick 60% of the people out of the hospitals. You know, this is what autocrats do. Um, and, and if you look around the various autocracies, um, the people are not happy these days. You know, we've talked about these protests in the streets, but, you know, Orban lost Budapest and the 14 other largest Hungarian cities. You know, Erdogan lost the mayoral contests in Istanbul, Ankara, and Izmir. You know, Putin lost effectively, even though he got rid of all the opposition candidates, he effectively lost the mayoral contest in our local contest in, in, in Moscow. And so where people have the choice to speak out, they've been speaking out for greater freedoms. Um, it's important I think for the United States to try to show that democracy can deliver. and of course under Trump that's been hard. but at least you do have a, a vigorous press, you know civil society, um, independent members of Congress who can push back when you have a president who pushes chloroquine or chlorox as, as you know the solution to the pandemic who who denies you know that, that it is such a serious problem now as so we can get the economy going and improve his re-election prospects. And you know that kind of inanity, at least there's pushback. But I think, ultimately, this is a contest between you know, what delivers better for people, um, an autocracy or democracy. And um, you know, it, it is, it's not as if we've been governed in a great way the last four years. But of course, nor have the autocratic states. And ultimately, this is going to be what's going to, I think, persuade people one way or the other. You know, where would they rather live? Where is their life likely to be um, most improved?
1: So we're all going to move to New Zealand. If they
2: would take us right, <laughs> if
1: yes. they would take us exactly. um so uh, Derek, so same same question. you know we're we're moving possibly into new administration, possibly not, but uh, if if not, we we know what to expect. What would you like to see um from a new administration? What do you expect to see?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, um, first of all, I think return to some of the fundamentals. I mean, um, Ken mentioned those, it's easy pickings to talk about return to alliances, return to partnerships, return to diplomacy, returning to a, um, you know, a liberal face and to represent the values that people come to expect of the United States, just recovering that. uh, So that's viewed as sort of a four-year binge or something that, (laughs) Some strange moment in American history, that obviously those conditions will not go away in the United States and it won't sim- simply be a turning of the page. It would be very difficult to recover, but uh, there's no silver bullet to getting back on track. But at least that face of America will change and people will feel comforted again. I think those are fundamentals. I do think they do talk about going back to my issue, they do make a fine point on democracy. Uh, they make it a central plank of their platform, their foreign policy agenda. They raise, they elevate that in the pantheon of issues, which is very encouraging. Um, again, I, I, you know, we're not just talking about moral values here, which are also very important. Governance matters. If you talk to people, and I was in the Pentagon, but I talked to old colleagues there who work on counterterrorism. You talk to people at you know, U.S. Institute of Peace or on the Hill about conflict situations and how do you bring real peace. Um, you talk about health conditions, uh, preventing pandemics, as Ken suggested. Of educational standards, Uh, study after study says that democracy is better for all of this. Uh, Governance, democratic governance matters. We tend to see democracy as sort of a nice thing. Yeah, it's good over here. It's it's good for idealists to promote this stuff, or people may see it as oh, it's aggressive. They'll see it like the Bush administration go and invade folks and impose your way, rather than what we do. What the right way is is support those who are seeking a greater voice, of which there are billions around the world who just want to figure out how to get this right and how to defend their rights uh, and get jobs and and all the rest. And America has a great role to play in that. And it will have, uh, I think, strategic value for all the things that we care about. Um, And I see the Biden administration putting a fine point on that. I personally, you know, we talk about the three D's of uh, American foreign policy, diplomacy, defense, and development. I would propose strongly they add a fourth D which is democratic governance. I think that is essential. Governance, if you look at it, it runs through most of the problems and the challenges we see globally. And if you're serious about addressing these core challenges, uh, core global challenges, you have to look at the quality of governance. Transparent, accountable, inclusive governance that is responsive to people. It works, it's practical, it's not simply an ideology. It's not easy, it's not gonna be simple. Uh, We've seen that. People can game that system. Institutions are weak and they take time to develop. Democratic culture can take time to develop. But this is very, I think, essential. And frankly, I do see this uh, among some in the Biden camp, that they're recognizing uh, the importance of governance and democracy. So if we get that right balance right, it's not sort of Bush era, but it's certainly not Trump. Um, And somewhere where we are promoting these things in a more thoughtful way in partnership with others, um that would be a very encouraging new approach by a biden administration that is relevant to this moment
1: yeah, i i would add and i restrain myself from editorializing here but i but i do think the, the the broad point you're making is 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 an important and often overlooked one which is democracy is not one line and one continuum it's a Whole series of different kinds of efforts that were, are reflected then in the transparency and the inclusiveness and the responsiveness of the government to the people. And when you have a breakdown in any one area, it weakens the system. And that could be, by the way, the delivery of healthcare services to a substantial portion of the population, or failures of policing, or uh, an, an economy that, that 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 produces gross inequality becomes increasingly less democratic, particularly if money is associated with the ability to elect people. Um, and so it's, it, it needs to, you need to have a holistic view in order to get to the right out. And
3: can I say as well, building on Ken's point, that uh, look, we're not alone now in this. I mentioned this before as well. China is out there aggressively. I think also Suzanne talked about it. China is out there aggressively promoting their model, their narrative basically, that autocracy works. Uh, our model works. And it works for China. I mean, they're out there buying off elites, uh, getting investments, um, leveraging, you know, changing debt to equity in terms of ports and airports and all the rest around the world. Uh, and it can be, in the absence of an alternative out there, it can be attractive. And there is no alternative out there. We're just not out there in the game. Um, But we this is important strategically in that sense because there's someone out there aggressively promoting an alternative that is not going to work for the general interest. It might work for China's interest. They don't care about, I think, the general interest. They assume that will take care of itself. But we traditionally do think certainly of America, but of the general interest. Um, So it's very important that we get on this quickly.
1: So, Suzanne, same question. We've got a, a, a potential administration shift coming in January. What do you expect? What would you like to see?
0: You know, uh, I think we will see uh, if Joe Biden is elected a pretty dramatic change of both tone and substance in terms of how he engages with the rest of the world, the repairing of alliances, the restoration of America's presence and participation and leadership in the multilateral sphere, making good on obligations to institutions, you know, like the World Health Organization, rejoining the Human Rights uh, Council. You know, and some of it's sort of the Obama playbook. You know, when Obama came in, it was also a period uh, where the U.S.'s reputation around the world had deteriorated and there was sort of a series of steps to take to try to rebuild it. And I think some of those measures remain uh important and necessary but i think that it has to go further i mean if we're going to be credible as a standard bearer for human rights and democracy globally i think we do have to confront the gaps and lapses in our own democracy here at home i mean ken sort of reviewed at the uh, top of this uh you know litany of ways in which president trump has put himself above the law and that's part of it but there's also this weakening and fraying of our institutions uh, issues like voter suppression uh, racial disparities in this country that kind of I think tarnish the image of democracy and what we represent and stand for when we go around the world and, and, and sort of uh, seed uh, and, and these questions about whether this system is really a fair one who it leaves out whether it uh, you know just privileges and, and reifies the wealthy and you know some people have called the pandemic, a great flattener i'm not so sure it's a great flattener i think it's it's been a stratifier uh in many ways in terms of uh, you know looking at where the contagion has hit looking at who's benefited economically from the relief and stimulus programs uh who, who has been able to protect themselves you know who has been enriched by this so i think there's a kind of domestic reckoning on the quality of our own democracy that needs to happen I also think there's a deep think on the role of technology uh, globally, where the US has really been sort of sine and in a standstill, with no policy being made uh, over the last four years, and things moving ahead at a rapid clip, and, and China also beginning to uh, sew up relationships uh, around the world to implement its version of a 5G network, uh, including the capability to- enact globally the kind of surveillance that they uh, uh, bring to bear at home. And the COVID epidemic has also sort of enabled and emboldened this because of the need for contact tracing and detailed tracking of, where, of, of individual movements, facial recognition. So there is a kind of galloping forward of technologies that have grave implications for privacy, for freedom of expression, freedom of movement, freedom of association, and the US you know, really has been absent uh, as a, a moral voice and a thought leader on these debates. And if a Biden administration doesn't get on top of that, uh, you know, I think others are gonna be setting the terms for this. You know, Europe is a very different story. And Europe has been quite assertive in some areas of this with, mu- with much more aggressive privacy regulations. Uh, you know, we've had the benefit of seeing how some of that is playing out, but I think it's an area where uh, I very much hope and, and I believe that in order to, remain a leader on the global stage and setting these agendas uh, that a new administration is going to have to set forth a vision of how the internet can be, uh, you know, not just a a kind of value, a place drained of values uh, you know, where the biggest investor wins, but rather, uh, you know, trying to uphold uh, and rebuild some of the ideals that animated it at the beginning in terms of freedom of uh, connection and, Expression uh, and the ability to communicate and amplify all kinds of voices
1: You know, it's a really good point and I could go on and on with this I find the all three of you fascinating and I think these issues are vitally important But maybe in the remaining two minutes or three minutes. We've got let me go to Ken and and Derek to follow up on Suzanne's point and and ask you know What are the next generation issues that you whether at, at, at uh, NDI or human rights watch are, are are focusing on because you know, Suzanne brought up some privacy is going to be a different kind of an issue uh, We've certainly seen disinformation changing campaigns the surveillance state uh, Issue goes beyond privacy of course into the role of of the state um, the role of AI and 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 whether um, You know how how algorithms are formulated that impact? The way human lives go uh the the role of big data and who has the data and who has the ability to mine the data and what does that mean in terms of markets and rights all come to my mind just listening to suzanne ken what's your is there a sort of human rights watch 2.0 agenda that you're focusing on and then i'll ask the same question to derek yeah
2: i mean there is but um david let me start off with two old-fashioned issues and then get into some older ones because Um, some newer ones, but, but, um, first, I think, you know, if there is a Biden presidency, probably the most important thing to do is to, um, mend kind of the culture in Washington, you know, that we, we tend to neglect the fact that American democracy is not based simply on laws, but also on a certain restraint, you know, certain just respect for institutions and tradition. Um, that's been shattered and, and that needs to be rebuilt. I think Biden is the kind of person who can do that. He may not have the articulateness to do it, but he does seem to be a decent man. Um, But that's an an urgent thing to do. Second, again, old fashioned is that when um, people look at the United States from outside, particularly from Europe to the United States, they are appalled at the callousness of the society. Um, um, The fact that people are scrambling to get healthcare, that there's a completely tattered social safety net. And in this sense, the pandemic is a bit of an opportunity. I think we recognize now that we're kind of only as safe as our um, most neglected neighbor. And that if there are pockets of neglect, Um, these are incubators for the virus and they're going to spread and so this is you know an opportunity to um, move forward way beyond Obamacare and really have universal health care it's an opportunity to um, take some of these extraordinary steps right now that are being taken around you know unemployment and and the like and make them permanent so that you know this is not a system where you know if people fall through the cracks they're just left there but there is a you know some kind of fabric to, to to capture them but then i mean looking at the next set of issues Um, We've actually had some interesting evolution on privacy just in the last two months over these contact tracing apps that are suddenly the the rage. Um, Two months ago, it was almost routine for governments to think it was okay to collect our location data. And what's been interesting about this debate about these contact tracing apps is that nobody is collecting location data. That is understood as a complete violation of, of privacy and that instead they're using proximity data, this Bluetooth handshake between phones. Um, as something that it will say whether you were near somebody who was infected, but not where you were, because if you'd reveal where you were, it reveals your entire personal life. Um, similarly around AI, I mean, we're kind of in the middle of a debate right now around, say, the use of algorithms for things like um, bail determinations. Um, and there's recognition that, you know, the old concept of GIGO, garbage out, still applies to AI, because if, you know, the um, data used discriminatory police practices, then you're gonna just replicate those in bail decisions. Or similarly, if you rely on AI as Britain is doing to try to um, modernize access to social benefits, um, you tend to, to disadvantage the people who need the most because they're not as liberate, liberate, literate um, in terms of um, digitally literate, literate. They're not as you know available to use computers and the like. So there are you know, issues of equity and fairness that arise um, in the AI realm we're beginning to talk about but there needs to be much more
1: work done in that realm as well. Okay, Derek.
3: I don't know how much time we have, but I want to, look, the technology issue is absolutely central to our vision going forward for democracy. I think digital is killing democracy in some ways because of the way it operates. It atomizes, it separates, it alienates, Um, but it exists. And so we have to figure out a way, and we're trying to do this at NDI with a new division on tech and democracy. How do you harness it? For, to, to promote democratic values, and how do you mitigate um, you know, it's the degradation caused by technology to democracy that we're seeing. That's countering disinformation, making sure people have, understand what they're seeing, have an ability to determine fact from fiction. These are really, really hard issues. And then you get into deep fake and all the other huge challenges to come. These are fundamental to the quality of democracy going forward. That's one thing uh, is technology. Second is, frankly, maybe seem something from the past, but it's definitely the future. Empowering women. I mean, we talk about how democracy has been degraded the past 14 years. And political participation is up, and Suzanne talked about young people, but women. If you don't open the aperture and let new voices in, um, and every study, of course, suggests that when women are involved in any in governance or anything, then the numbers, you know, the, the benefits go up. So we're putting a major focus on empowerment of women globally over the next 10 years. Uh, this is the 25th anniversary this year of the Beijing Women's Conference. All of that, of course, is overwhelmed by the pandemic, but we should remember um, those types of things. Um, so those are really some, uh, some critical ones. And the final thing I wanna say is building off Ken's first point about the culture in, in Washington. Um, I, I, uh, democracy in particular, but many of the issues we're talking about, they're actually bipartisan. And we, we get distracted by Trump. Um, democracy support on Capitol Hill is deep and wide, and Republicans and Democrats. The concern about China, we have differences and it will be exacerbated during the campaign. I think that is joined bipartisan way because of what China represents. We have an ability, there's an NDI, there's also an International Republican Institute. This is a, a vehicle for us to be working actually on a bipartisan basis to recover the American voice and recover American purpose. Um, if if there's a new president, to be very honest, um, so uh, that's a positive thing that comes out of what we talked about today. Is not that this is divisive in America? We do have to take care of American democracy, no doubt about it. But uh, this particular issue is uh, a unifier if we can if we use it that way.
1: Well, thank you. I think a lot of things, positive things, have come out of this conversation. It's been interesting to listen to all of you. And I know that our listeners, tens of thousands of people who are deeply engaged in these kinds of issues, um, Will will follow this with interest. I hope that in addition to Uh, having listened to this conversation, they'll also go and follow the work that's being done at the National Democratic Institute, at PEN America, and at Human Rights Watch, because all of you are actively um, advancing these issues on a regular basis. You have remarkable groups of people working for you. Uh, And uh, by following you, you can also get into more granular questions, regional questions, and so forth. And I think that's Incredibly important and it's one of the reasons that as we set out to do this agenda series this becomes the the second item in the series the rest of uh, those to come will deal with different aspects of economic policy technology policy environmental policy um, uh, and and other issues but these these provide the framework they're kind of the why of government uh, and that's why we are so fortunate to have Uh, had with us Ambassador Derek Mitchell, who's the president of the National Democratic Institute, Suzanne Nossel, who's the CEO of PEN America, and Kenneth Roth, who's the executive director of Human Rights Watch. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening, uh, and stay healthy, everybody.